Welcome to Shrink for the Shy Guy. This is the show for you if you are sick and tired of being held back by fear, self-doubt, social anxiety, shyness, anything that's stopping you from you being you. I'm going to share the most powerful tools and resources that I've been discovering over the last 15 years on my journey to eradicate social anxiety and instill confidence, first in myself and then in every single person that I meet on my journey. You're going to learn these tools and how to apply them in your life now so that you can become the most free, powerful, bold, authentic version of you. Welcome to today's episode of the show. Today is perfect timing because we're going to be talking about fear and how to use fear, how to work with fear. My guest expert is someone who's been studying fear from the from an internal experience of his own and then going on to study the heck out of it with neuroscience and has gone on to teach people how to overcome fear, how to work with fear, how to use fear as fuel. In fact, that's the name of his book, which we'll be getting into as well. And I think this is a perfect time because there is so much fear. I mean, there's always fear in the background for, for us, right? If we're really honest and we slow down. But now it's just front and center with everything that's happening in the world with the coronavirus and all the effect that that's having and the uncertainty in the world. Uh, there's so much fear. And whether you're feeling it or people that you know and love are feeling it or you just tune into it in the collective, right? When you turn on the news and see what's happening in social media, you can you can see what's what's occurring and how much fear there is. And how in many ways we've been hijacked by it. And it's it's intense, the amount of fear and all the different ways that, that fear manifests. Sometimes it's not just raw terror, but it manifests as blaming others or being enraged or being righteous. Um, and so there's the collective fear right now. And we're going to talk about that with my guest expert as well, as well as that fear inside of all of us, you know, that predates this virus, just that fear we can carry on, fear that we're not enough, fear that if we don't reach our goal, fear if other people are going to judge us, all the ways that fear can hold us back. And this is a fantastic interview. I encourage you to get something to take notes on as you listen, because he's got so much information. So I'm going to introduce him here and then we'll begin that conversation. But my guest expert today is named Patrick Sweeney. Patrick Sweeney is the author of a book called Fear is Fuel. And he brings six years of neuroscience research that he's done to developing life-changing system, which he teaches us in the interview, to really learn to use courage and unshakable confidence in the face of fear. And he has a, a great ability to really take a lot of neuroscience research and communicate it in a way that's very relatable, very understandable, very absorbable, so you can actually use it. And it's really fantastic. I learned a ton in this interview, and I can't wait to share it with you. But not only does he teach people how to do this through his book, through keynote speaking, through working with leaders and corporations, but he also has a history of, of learning how to overcome his own inner fear. And we talk about that in depth in the interview. But one way he's done that is through athletics, and he's achieved very highly in athletics. He was an Olympic rower, and then also, most recently, he won the world's toughest bicycle race called Race Across America. That was in 2018. So just a fascinating background and an incredible story of how do we work with fear and how do we grow with it, how do we activate courage in the face of it. And I can't wait to share this with you. Thank you so much for joining us on the show, Patrick. 
Dr. Aziz, thank you so much for having me. It's a, it's a real pleasure. And, and all of your listeners who are turning in, thank you for taking the time out of your day. Yes. And knowing everything I've uh, read about you and your, what you teach, this will be uh, highly valuable for, for our listeners and, and for me, because I am a, a student of confidence. It's something I've been obsessively studying for the last 17 years. But really, what that means is I'm a, I'm a student of the things that can really detract from confidence. And the big ones that I've found are a harsh inner critic, a lot of self-judgment is one major um, detractor from confidence, and the other one is strong fear or low-grade, persistent, ongoing fear and anxiety. So these are things that I've been very interested in and have uh, helped a lot of clients with, and I'm always looking at uh, for myself, like what's the next level of, of liberation of, of confidence. So I'm so excited to learn from you. And so listeners can know a little bit more about your journey. Um, and as I mentioned in the introduction, some of the things you've done require a lot of willingness to, to face discomfort, face challenge, face fear. Um, but let's, let's go, let's go way back before we hear more about what you teach and really look at, uh, sort of the man behind the, the lessons. Um, when you were young, uh, maybe child, teenager, let's say, Mm -hmm. uh, how did you relate? Was fear a big part of your life then? And, and how did you relate to it? It was, and um, uh, not in a good way. <laughs> so we, um, we grew up first generation uh, Irish immigrants, and uh, my dad, you know, was working three or four jobs. So we had, I had fear of, of never having enough, you know, scarcity, because we'd have literally Bisquick pancakes. I don't know if you remember what Bisquick was. I but... do know what Bisquick is, yes. <laughs> and uh, so at least two, sometimes three nights a week, that's all we'd have for dinner because it just meant you you could open a pack and mix some water in it and throw some syrup on it and you had dinner. So that was all we could afford was a fifty box of, of Bisquick for my brother and I. Um, and and so scarcity and and never having enough I can remember when I was maybe six or seven years old before they had fair, fair credit rules in the in the world and people knocking on our door and my mother saying, we got to shut out the lights and pretend like we're not a uh, we're not home. And those were creditors because we had past due bills. And so uh, that was that was one source of fear was the scarcity. The other source of fear was um, was just getting bullied by neighborhood kids. We moved around a lot as my dad was transitioning from job to job and always being the new kid meant you always had to prove yourself or get in a fight or get picked on. And so there was a, a tremendous amount of fear and all of it was sort of under the umbrella. And, and, and you mentioned it a bit, Dr. Aziz, that I was never good enough as a person. And the, the kid in at 16 years old who had the brand new Camaro and uh, had the cheerleader girlfriend, they were always way better than me. I was, I was never good enough and, and never strong enough and, and certainly never had a sense of self-love. And, and I started trying to make money when I was eight or nine years old by shining shoes and then had my first job in a flower shop at 11 years old and, and thought, you know, money or, or then later in my life, athletics would, would be a way to earn some self-esteem and some self-confidence. But, you know, in reality for me, it just ended up 
how I built up this this facade. You know, I, mm-hmm. I really went to the to the other side to hide my fear and my cowardice. And and you know, that's that's what a lot of you see a lot of people doing that with money or with athletics or with clothes or you know other things like that. Just just really hiding their own fears. Yeah. Well, I love I love this. What a great start to this conversation because you know you teach people how to work with fear, use fear as fuel, and um, we're really excited to get into that. But what a great backstory so people understand that this isn't some kind of like this is how I master fear and it never bothered me kind of uh, energy. And like no, I mean it's such a relatable story. Um, and and what I'm curious about is because you you know continue up until this point most recently um with your uh race across america um Mm -hmm. but even you know when you were younger um and uh getting into rowing so you you have uh, accomplished a lot athletically so when you were younger and you were getting into rowing and started to obviously excel at that to the point that you were you know in the olympic trials and all that Mm -hmm. uh was that giving you a sense of confidence and self-esteem because you were doing well at it you know, it's a great um, that's it's a great thing to explore because I had started out uh, in in high school. I went to high school in Keene, New Hampshire, and in high school um, was looking for a sport. Played baseball growing up, but then got in a fight with my my coach in high school because I thought I knew everything and and you know uh, typical sort of teenage angst. And found ended up finding cross country skiing of all things, and uh, got pretty good at it. Won a state championship in New Hampshire. Wanted to ski in college, and wanted to go ski in the Olympics, and and really earn this spot of respect. And and my second year at, at University of New Hampshire, which was a Division One ski school, uh, so we were training all the time. It was it was highly competitive. The technique changed from diagonal stride, which is kind of what you do on the Nordic track machine in the gym, and it switched to skating, which was very much like rollerblading with poles. And I'm six three, and uh, and and the big loping strides of diagonal stride became uh, really a hindrance to me. And these shorter guys who could have a much higher cadence with their skating style were killing me. So I I lost my position on the team and was no longer on on the UNH ski team. And the athletic director said, you know, uh, you're always training so hard as a skier and you've got the perfect build, you should try rowing. So um, it was a club program at UNH and I got, uh, uh, I got, you know, the coach was just enamored with me because I was tall and aerobically super fit uh, from skiing. And so I got the the welcome wagon brought out, and within about two weeks, we had to do a test on the erg, the the rowing machine. And my technique was horrible; I could barely, you know, get up and up and down the slide. But I was so fit compared to uh, most of the club athletes from cross country skiing. And it's a great, obviously, full body uh, aerobic mm-hmm. workout that I I set the erg the erg record for UNH and you know within my first month of rowing. <laughs> so so I thought, wow, here's a here's an easy sport. This is a one for me. And mm-hmm. uh, and so my junior year, I won what was the club national championships, a regatta called Dad Vales. And um, and and I was horrified. I tell some stories in my book as you. Uh, mentioned the beginning, Fear is Fuel, the new book that just hit the Wall Street Journal bestseller list. Um, I tell a, a bunch of stories about the rowing, 
And to directly answer your your question, Dr. Aziz, when I started rowing, I was always rowing out of fear. And my first Olympic trials in Camden, New Jersey, I finished 14th. And that was when, uh, in the single skull, in the one-man rowing. And that was when my parents sort of said, okay, you've messed around with this for, you know, a couple of years. Now it's time to get on with your life. And, and, uh, and I said, no, I, th- I think there's more to it. I ended up finding a coach who spent more time, I think, working on my mental state on the water than anything else. Because I always had this belief that, um, you know, when I feel courageous, I can act courageous. And a lot of people do. And he was the one who showed me it's really the opposite of that. You have to act courageous first, and then you'll start to feel courageous. It's that scary. You mentioned uh, doing a lot of things that make you uncomfortable. And I, I always say you've got to be comfortable being uncomfortable to, to do anything great in life. And so we started working a ton on my mental stuff. And it was very specific to rowing and to being on the race course and mm. Uh, in the 96 Olympic trials in Atlanta, um, I finished second and I had raced the World Cup for three years. And I, I wasn't appreciably more fit or, or stronger. I was rowing better technically. But uh, I would say 10 spots out of those 12 spots that I, that I increased you know, in my ranking in the country was due to mental training. And I felt very confident on the water. I always felt like I had the best start of anyone that I was going up against. I had the best sprint. And, and, but I never learned until the, my, my near-death experience, I never really learned how to translate that to other aspects of my life. Mm. Yeah. So that's a great segue into, into that. I mean, so you're achieving at this high level and you do feel, uh, confident about your abilities to, to perform, you know, when you're on the water. Um, and then you, you know, you're, you also go on to excel in many other areas in, in business and, um, and other types of sports and adventuring. And then you, you mentioned just now this near death experience and we could share a little bit more about that with our listeners and how it, what it, what happened and what shifted for you from that. Sure. Well, you know, it's um, it's interesting because as we sit and record this in the in the middle, you know, the the third or fourth week of the coronavirus here in Boston, um, I, I see a lot of similarities to, to what I was going through because I didn't have any self-esteem and, and self-confidence. I was always trying to build this uh, this facade. Right. I was trying to trying to put myself inside a cocoon where I could hide. Because anytime I felt fear as as a kid, you know, uh, I felt shame with it, right? I, I felt like I should feel confident and I and I should feel um, like like I'm good enough and and I'm adequate, and I never did. And so I was always trying to cover it up. And the athletic stuff and and posturing that way was one thing. And you know, I often tell people now, if I had a different motivation and different mindset, I could have been an Olympic gold medalist. But because I didn't have that confidence and that courage. It didn't happen. And when I went back to business school, um, I I only wanted to go to a a top 10 business school and that's all I applied to. And I was fortunate to get the dumb jock entry. You know, every business school has a Navy SEAL and an Olympic athlete. So, uh, so I got the, I got the Olympic athlete slot and, um, went back to, to business school 
and decided I had one goal and that was 40 by 40. I want to make myself a net worth of $40 million by the time I was 40 years old. Fuck everything. And how, and, and how old were you at the, at the time that you decided that? Uh, so that would have been, um, my, let's see, second year in business school. So I was probably 28, 29 years old. Okay. So I gave myself 10 years and, um, uh, I'm just going to jump in real quick. Cause I, I think that's fascinating, right? So you're like, okay, I'm going to be the best, you know, that I can possibly be in rowing. Right. And you are, you're competing at, on the world stage. And then it's like, okay, I'm going to go into business. Okay. I'm going to go to the best business school that I can. And then I'm going to set this like super ambitious goal to, you know, 40 by 40. And there's like this, and I think that's a fascinating uh, topic. You know, it's like where our ambition comes from and how there can be like, we're called to, you know, I, I believe that we're, we do have these, this purpose or purposes in life that, that, uh, are revealed to us or we discover them. Maybe it's a combination sort mm -hmm. of our path is illuminated as we go with these twists and turns. And obviously what, what we'll hear about in a minute, what happened with you, with your health was one, but, but then there's also these other ambitions that we have that are, that people aren't aware of that can be really fueled by fear. And oh, yeah. fueled by, you know, the fear of I'm not enough. I fear I got to prove something. I fear I'm going to be somebody. And, and so I'm really curious with that, uh, you know, that, that 40 by 40, do you think that was influenced by achieving something so you could feel like enough? And was it, was it, was there a lot of fear in there or do you think it was more? Uh, Dr. Aziz, I don't think it, I know it. I, yeah. I mean, a hundred percent. That was, that was all about making me better than everybody else. you better than all the kids I grew up with, better than all the other rowers better than whatever it was. It was all about trying to give me a level of status that I didn't get with athletics. And, and so I thought, okay, well, I'll get it with money. And, um, and now I do a lot of work with an organization called YPO that I've been a member of for about 12 years, young president's organization. And I'm working with a bunch of other CEOs and we did a retreat last year uh, with a, a great group of guys. It was it was eight people, uh, seven seven men and and one woman, and two of the guys were billionaires. And we started working on some of the um, what what I call what I refer to in the book as the fear frontier. And they have a, a good side, and and there's also a dark side to them, and the the shadow side of the, the personalities and, and uh, these defense mechanisms we make as little kids. And excuse me, this in a one real estate billionaire who flew there on his G550 and he said he didn't have any hidden fears and I had to, <laughs> I had to stop and tell him and say, hey, that's why they're called hidden. So <laughs> let's, let's keep working on them. And uh, it, it turned out his superpower was was protection and and in real estate it was protection of his assets so he never lost a building he never lost a property he has these great stories about you know literally going and sleeping in the stock room and helping his tenants in in an early property pay the rent and and you know sort things out because the the bank was going to take the property back from him and and uh, he's just got great stories like that, but then you see the shadow side of it. He was so protective of anything because of what happened to him as a child that when he married his college sweetheart, he was the exact same way. He kept being more and more fearful that something was going to happen to her. He was waiting for the shoe to, to drop. And uh, so, you know, initially he started making some more money and they put in a house security system. 
and then he's making more money and, and sort of getting more headlines and he's getting more worried. So he puts trackers on her cars and her cell phone. And then, you know, he becomes a billionaire and is in the paper a lot. And he hires a, a security guards and, and bodyguards to stay with her all day. And of course, you can imagine what happened. He ended up uh, having the exact opposite of what he wanted, which was protecting and making sure he'd never lose his wife. He ended up smothering her and and not realizing really why he was doing it. He never thought she was cheating or anything like that. He just never wanted to lose her, never wanted to have anything happen to her. So it was that that shadow side of the motivation. You know, part of it was was great and and served him well, and then part of it ruined his life. Mm. So when you and that and that highlights something about the hidden fear is that you know people have an idea of fear and they think it is you know, I, I'm shaky inside and I'm, and I'm going to run from something and fear can manifest in so many different ways than that. And it can manifest as ambition or a desire to control something or a hardness inside, or even an aggression or an attacking energy that Absolutely. we might feel. Anger. And, and then when I say, I'm not, I'm not scared. I'm angry. I'm pissed. Yeah. And, and actually it's, there's a lot of of that fear underneath. Okay. There's so many threads that you're opening up that are so fascinating. I want to make sure that we, uh, keep moving forward. Cause we've got to get to, um, fear as fuel and how do we use it in this fear frontier? I want to explore that. I also want to talk sure. more about how we, you know, the fear in this current climate and your perspectives on that. So yeah. both of those, but before that, let's, let's hear about that, that experience, the near death experience you had. And, yeah. So, uh, you know, all I all I was caring about at the time was making money. And uh, I, I had started a couple of tech companies, raised about 50 million dollars in venture capital. I was terrified all the time. I, I should have been having the time of my life. I was driving around in one hundred fifty thousand dollar cars, wearing ten thousand dollar suits. Now, this is at a literally at a five million dollar startup. So I'm thinking I'm, you know, frigging Gordon Gecko <laughs> just to try and keep the the facade up, right? That that nothing was wrong, and the whole time, in reality, I was terrified. And I was afraid that uh, we were going to lose our top employees. I was scared that our best customers were going to find a better deal someplace. Rather than use my board, which which now you know I've invested in in thirty startups and and helped some of the boards, but um, now you know I look at a board in a much different way. But back then. I would spend a week just preparing for a board meeting so I look good, right? It wasn't about getting the collective wisdom of the board, which, which is what a board is there for, but it was rather, you know, trying to make myself look good. And so because I was afraid all the time, and this is analogous to what's going on with a lot of people now, Dr. Aziz, with the um, coronavirus, because I was afraid all the time, my body was creating this fear cocktail, and, and when we have a reaction that you talked about, when, when you all of a sudden feel scared or you feel fear, that's, that's a lot of that cocktail getting pushed out into your body by a little gland at the base of your brain called the amygdala. And that amygdala is running a two million year old piece of software that was a warning system for danger. And danger might have been getting rejected from the tribe or not finding a mate or, um, or looking less like a quality mate than another person, so embarrassment. So all of those things would create that reaction. What I was having was this, this fear of failure, fear of insignificance, fear of abandonment and rejection constantly 
So that spigot that was that was shooting out that fear cocktail and it's adrenaline and DHEA and cortisol and other enzymes, it's going through your body. And when you have that low level of cortisol, a lot of people know that as the stress hormone, it starts to eat away at your insides, just like acid eating away at lead. And that's what was happening to me. And so I was dealing with it the only way I knew how, by drinking. So I'd have six to eight beers or cocktails every night at a venture capital event or a networking event or you know charity event or whatever it was, it didn't matter. I'd find an excuse to start drinking around five o'clock and then end up going home at midnight for a couple hours of teeth grinding sleep, feel guilty about it, which is you know an Irish Catholic thing, <laughs> and then wake up in the morning, go to the gym to sweat it out. And one morning I woke up went to the gym, started doing pull-ups, and my arm was just, you know, in, in a ton of pain. And I thought, well, I must have, must have pulled a muscle or strained a tendon. So I started uh, doing cardio, and then I figured, you know, it would be fine, go back to my normal routine. Next day I woke up, and, and the arm was, was really hurting. It was red and swollen and angry. And I said, I should go to the doctor, but I was too afraid to, right? I, I didn't want, want to hear what he might tell me. So by the time the third day rolls around, I couldn't even move the arm, had to go to the doctor. And they said, you know, it looks like staph infection, which is pretty common with guys who go to the gym. We're going to give you some antibiotics, take a blood test, and the nurse will call you back in the afternoon. And as you probably know, the nurse didn't. The doctor did. And that was the single phone call that changed my life. That's when he told me, we don't know what it is, but you have no immune system and you're under attack by a staph infection. We don't have the capability to deal with it here and in Reston Hospital. We want to send you up to Johns Hopkins. And it's the, it's the best hospital in the world, and they can sort you out up there. And, you know, long story short, when I got up to Johns Hopkins, they basically said, are your affairs in order? Because we not, we're not sure there's anything we can do for you. And uh, my daughter was a year old. My wife was six Ooh. months pregnant. And, uh, and, and that's when I came face to face with the realization that I had completely wasted my life. And I had all these amazing opportunities and I was only motivated by, by fear and shame and, and guilt and regret. And I never made decisions based on opportunity and, and excitement and happiness and fulfillment. And so I, I was- Did you have clarity uh, in that moment of, was it the regret of having lived in those emotional states of fear and guilt, uh, you know, more of your life than you would have wanted? Or was it also like, did you have clarity of like, oh, if I'd been choosing, if I'd been able to be more, you know, free or open or um, that I would have done A, B and C? Like, did you see a whole different life path you would have chosen? I wouldn't say a whole different life path, but but it was definitely I, I just had this. Tremendous sadness. So, so my biggest fear was flying. I saw an accident on uh, TV, a plane crash, when I was um, seven years old, and that stuck with me. Right, that that created my fear frontier. So, I made up every excuse you could possibly imagine not to fly. And you know, whether it was spring break or exchange programs or um, you know, training opportunities or whatever. I would either drive, take a train, or make up some excuse not to go. And, uh, and, and even, you know, the, one of the happiest days of my life, very few Americans have rode the single skull in the World Cup. 
And I got the opportunity to do that for three years in a row. And, and when I found out about it the first time my coach called me, I should have been absolutely thrilled. But instead, I was having a huge fear reaction on the other end of the phone. My, my body was, was just going apoplectic at the thought that I'd have to fly. I'd have to go to Europe to compete in the World Cup. Mm. And so, you know, I looked back on that and, and I looked back on spring break that I missed or I looked back on family reunions and Ireland I should have done. And, and I thought, you know, I can't believe I'm about to die now from some stupid disease and I missed out on all of those opportunities. So mm. it wasn't a clarity of a different path. It was just a tremendous regret mm. for, for worrying and, and being so fearful. And, you know, I look back on, on my first company and, and I realized, God, I was, I was just acting. Every time that, that early warning system went off with the amygdala and, and trying to tell me that, you know, there's, there's a threat to my life or there's a threat to procreation, I listen to it. And that's a two million year old piece of software in our brain that has no place in today's world. And that's what I see a lot of people doing now is having that low level of cortisol still coursing through their brains because they're, you know, they're locked in their homes. They can't have a normal life. They're terrified of what'll happen. And, and ironically, that's going to eat away at their immune system as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, it's such a powerful, even as you're telling the story and it's through your own experience and we, you know, the listeners and myself are being graced to be able to get the, receive the, the message from the story, you know, as you lived it. Um, but it reminds me of this, you know, this, uh, I don't know who originally said it, but you know, you can't get out of life alive. And okay. we're, I think when we're very fearful, we're, we're, we're trying to minimize damage all the way through to the very end. And then you had this window of like, wait, the end could be now. Right now. And, yeah. and wow. I mean, I'm, I was going to die anyway. The whole time I was going to die anyway. <laughs> yeah. and, and then here I didn't get on a plane, you know, Spoiler because I thought alert. I might. I'd, yeah. So, <laughs> so you had this, uh, this, this profound uh, regret and I'm sure so many other feelings that, that emerged and somehow, uh, obviously you persevered and you did not die and you got through to the other side of it. I did. And, you know, so, some of it, interestingly enough, an interesting anecdote, and, and this is really my whole chapter six in fear is fuel. Um, my mental training that I learned at the Olympic training center definitely helped me recover. So I, I, I sat there doing mental training every waking moment when they said they didn't think there was anything to do. So that's, just a little aside. Well, did, you, did you do like visualization of, I of did, health? Yeah, or what did I did you? tons of visualization. And, and in fact, you know, I'd, I'd get myself in, in, you know, I got to the point where I could literally get in a, in a um, hypnotic suggestive state within about 30 seconds. And then I just imagine these warrior cells coming out of my sternum and, and going out and blasting away at those rogue T cells that, uh, that had mutated and that were attacking all my other white blood cells. And, you know, just like, like playing a, a call of duty and blasting away at zombies. And, and so I sat there every waking moment, you know, if I wasn't talking to my wife or something, just imagining that happen. And I, and I think that had a tremendous impact. And, um, you know, also prayed a lot and, and, uh, and, and, you know, reflected a lot and, and, and actually, you know, it's interesting, made a ton of changes after I got out with everything from diet to exercise. And that's, that's probably a whole nother podcast, Dr. Aziz, but 
what immediately happened the first day I got out was I walked out and um, it, it, Johns Hopkins is in kind of a crummy rundown area of Baltimore. And it was a, it was a gray November day. And then uh, I walked out and I saw this leaf in a puddle. It was, you know, bright red and changed around the, the edges with orange and like these orange veins running through it. And I said to my wife, I said, I know this sounds really corny, but that's like one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. And, and I just wanted to stop and look at it. And, you know, the old me that I thought had died in the hospital kind of crept up and said, look, you know, you lost an employee. You're going to lose that contract. Get your ass together. You got to get back to, you know, working heads down. And I just, you know, I said, no, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to ignore that two million year old piece of software that's that's trying to send that, uh, you know, that terror alert. And I'm just going to be grateful for being alive and be grateful for spending time with my wife and be grateful for this beautiful one year old daughter I had. And and so the gratitude was the almost immediate thing that happened. And from that gratitude and that realization, I decided I was going to choose courage because I saw what the end looked like if I didn't. And so when I chose courage, the first thing I did was I, I said to my wife, when I had to stay in my house for about six weeks while my immune system built back up, and, and I said to my wife, I'm going to go take flying lessons as soon as I can get out of the house. And, uh, and I said, I don't care if I'm kicking and screaming with every flight, but I'm going to get my private pilot's license and get over this fear of flying because you and, and Shannon and our, our baby boy on the way deserve to see the world and they deserve a daddy that will get on get on a plane and take him to Disney World or you know take him to to Yosemite or show him the world and I've got to be that guy. And so it was the choice to act courageous um, that helped reveal all of a sudden, you know, within about six months that the courage was my superpower and I never knew it. Mm. I love this. And I, I, uh, there's a, a few distinctions I'd really love to get into around that amygdala, the, the habitual firing of danger, threat, you know, yeah. respond right now. And, you know, there's kind of uh, two responses, I think, in, well, there's many, but there's two main ones that, in response to that, that fear surge. One is, is in, inhibit, right? Like hold back, pull back, don't, do, you know, ah, run away from the flight, don't, don't get on the airplane. Um, and then the other response that what you're alluding to that came maybe in business for you is it sends like something's going to happen with that contract and it throws us into uh, a flurry of action often yeah. where we're like, okay, I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna do that. I'm gonna do that. And, um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say action, Dr. Aziz, I'd say reaction. I uh, make sure we yes. make that distinction. Yes. Yeah. And it's, and it's usually a whole lot less effective <laughs> Then the action we might take if that that was not reactive, right? That was exactly. that was that was more uh, uh, intelligently thought out, perhaps. So, let's say someone is getting that that fear. So the face your fear part, do the things that scare you. That one um, is clearer what to do in a lot of cases, right? It's like okay, get on the airplane, or you know, my listeners might be like, go into that conversation, ask yeah. that person out, like. You know, how to do it and how to work with that. We can talk more about that. But like what to do is more clear when it comes to that kind of incessant, like something bad's going to happen. You got to respond to that contract. You got to do this thing. And I feel like so many people are living with that, that kind of ongoing 
surge of squirt of adrenaline and cortisol that's that's telling them something bad's gonna happen better react better react um and and i've noticed this in myself sometimes when i'm like you know what there's nothing i need to do with that right now it'll come back in and say no 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 you you didn't get the danger signal you really need to pay attention right now yeah and it will kind of redouble its efforts so i'm curious how do you navigate that one uh, so that, that, that I'd say two things. One very practical that I, you know, I, I certainly coach uh, a lot of younger executives, particularly even even you know some more successful CEO types um, on the Eisenhower matrix, which you've probably heard of that um, Stephen Covey made famous. That uh, on the x-axis is importance, and on the y-axis is urgent mm-hmm. urgency. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so uh, you know we often are pulled to do what's what's urgent um, first without looking at the level of importance. And, uh, and, you know, I think if we can put things in those bucket, what's important and urgent and, and do that first, what's impo- important but not urgent, do those second, and then, you know, leave everything else for when it comes, just having that as, as kind of a basic, a basic rule of thumb helps you delineate, you know, is this urgent because the phone keeps ringing or, um, you know, it, 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 the press is saying bad things or whatever, or is it really urgent and, and also important? So that helps, number one. But number two, you know, I talk about that two million year old piece of software in your brain running on the amygdala. What most people don't know, and, and this is fascinating because we're born with a fully developed amygdala. So, so actually, even before that, in the third trimester, the amygdala is fully developed in the brain, and we come out with that fight, flight, or freeze response. We have that capability to react to danger because it was survival. We don't get the prefrontal cortex, which is kind of the intelligent um, uh, adult supervision that sits at the front of our brain behind our forehead. That's not fully developed until we're in our early 20s. And so we've got 20 years, basically, of of fight, flight, or freeze response, which is which has a huge play in parenting. And we're populating our subconscious database, which is what we make all this, our decisions with. And our default is always to defense. It's always to, to fight, flight, or freeze, to one of those reactions. And we practice that default for, for 20 years before we have something else that can challenge it. That's something else most people have never heard of. It's called the subgenial anterior cingulate cortex, or the SGACC. And the SGACC is our courage center. And, and that's where all the potential is. So the potential for anything is in the present. It's not about what happened in the past. It's not you know things that we can pull out of our subconscious database. It's all in the present being right now what's happening. So to answer your question specifically, how do you take advantage of that when you figured out what's important, what's urgent, the way to do it really in, the, in one of the easiest ways, and I lay out a platform in the book called the BASE method, B-A-S-E, and the first B is breathing. And, and that is by far the easiest way to dramatically change your life. Because the, the breathing, whenever you feel a fear response, is the first thing that gets, disconnects the sympathetic nerve system from, from your brain. So it gives you a break to, to be able to step back and say, okay, I don't have to react. I can think, 
you know, if I make this decision, what's the second order decision I'll need to make? What's the third order decision? And, and look down a whole decision tree to figure out instead of just doing the knee jerk reaction. So the breathing, and I, I teach something called a four by four, which is breathe in for a count of four, hold it for a count of four, breathe out for a count of four, hold it out for a count of four. The Navy SEALs learn this at, at sniper training and they call it box breathing because you can think of each four seconds as going around the box. Mm. And that breathing can help you immediately in the moment. And there was a great study out of the University of Pittsburgh on mindfulness and meditation. And what they showed is just focusing on your breathing for 15 minutes a day. After three days when they were doing brain scans, they saw an improved connection to the SGACC. So, mm -hmm. so just three days of breathing can take that low level anxiety of you and get down. So that's why I do for my morning routine, I do some breathing and, and my bedtime routine, I do some breathing as well. And, and that's the, the easiest and most effective way to combat, you know, any of those feelings and that anxiety and, and, you know, low level fear. And in the, in your routine, do you do the box breathing or do you more mindful focus on the breath as a meditation? So, uh, in the morning I do, uh, something called Tumo breathing and, and something from Kundalini yoga. So I've got a, you know, a, a specific thing that I do for about 10 minutes that, that leads up to a, a very long breath hold at the end. So I'll uh -huh. generally hold my breath between, you know, four and five minutes, um, afterwards, once I've gotten a relaxed state and, you know, feel pretty good. Uh, and then at night, I just do the box breathing in uh, a position yoga is called the bound lotus. So it's sitting cross legs with your arms crossed behind you. And then I just focus on the box breathing for about five minutes before I go to bed. Mm, I love it. Thank you for sharing that. I think those details are always really helpful. Definitely for me and listeners, they can they can take little pieces from that. So, so we work with our breath in the moment to to activate this area that's associated with courage. And that's the B. And then what's the uh, what are the other elements of base? Sure. So the the um, it would take a little while to go into, but I'll I'll run through them real quickly. The the A is to assess the situation. So um, normally when we get reactive, when we fall for that amygdala hijacking, we're uh, we're like a race car driver sitting behind the wheel. The only thing we can see is is what's happening to us and and. Uh, you know, all the threats around us. We can't see the big picture. So when you learn to assess the situation, it's kind of like a helicopter that's filming the whole race. You can see turns up ahead. You can see all the different cars. You can see where your car and your driver fits in in that scenario. So that's a, an important skill to be able to step back and assess the situation. The S is interesting, and there's tons of science behind it. Um, people can check out the book if, if they want to hear more about it. But it's to smile and shift your eyes. And mm. smiling uses 42 muscles in your face that have a direct impact on the cortisol production. So um, Emory University did a study where they were, they were showing people um, horror films inside a functional MRI and scanning their brains. And they didn't want to tell them to smile to see if it changed it. So they gave them a chopstick that they put in their mouth so they'd have to flex all the muscles in their face. And what they saw <laughs> was an 80% reduction in cortisol. Wow. 
I love that study, by the way. That's just that's a trip <laughs> yeah. to imagine you're watching a horror film in an fMRI machine while with a chopstick in your, in your chopstick mouth. In your mouth. <laughs> yeah, it's well, brilliant though. I mean, it, and it and it's it's fan- It's such such good uh, information for us to to have that. Um, yes, yes, I know. Uh, Thich Nhat Hanh is a, is a big fan of the of half smile as a way to really calm our nervous system. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then and then the eyes is it eyes up? Looking up. No, it's shift the eyes. So it, what you're doing is basically mimicking rapid eye movement sleep or REM sleep. Okay. Because when when something happens uh, to us during the day, we form two memories of everything. We form what's called a semantic memory, which is just the facts, kind of, um, you know, with Dr. Z talking on a podcast, I've got a MacBook Pro, I've got two lights on in the room, it's snowing outside, just the facts. And then we create and we pair with that an emotional memory. Hey, this is really fun, super interesting guy. I'm curious about his audience. You know, I'm, I'm really feeling grateful for doing this. And then, so those two memories are formed in my mind already. When I go to sleep tonight, they're gonna consolidate what's called memory consolidation into my, my internal database, really, my subconscious. And when they do that, my eyes will shift back and forth. And they'll shift left to right like I'm watching, uh, you know, Chinese Olympic uh, table tennis guys play a, you know, brutal match together. (laughs) And so if we do that during the day, we can mimic that memory consolidation. And there's, you know, some interesting science behind that as well that I that I lay out in the book. But that's the that's the shift and smile. And then the E is to eliminate the shortcuts. And that's the most difficult one. And it's also the most impactful one by far. And what you're basically doing is the brain is so efficient that we only use half our hemisphere for most decisions. And we make between 75 and 80% of our decisions during the day subconsciously. And we do that based on our database of information or what neuroscientists call their prior beliefs. And the, the really messed up thing, Dr. Aziz, is that we didn't build that database. So we didn't choose what language we speak, we didn't choose the color of our skin, we didn't choose how many siblings we have, the town we grew up in, where we went to school. But all those things create our subconscious design of what our tribe is. And and that's the the thing that we base our shortcuts on. So the idea and and what you wanna do, instead of just reading the book that's in your mind that, that basically someone else put there, is you want to rewrite that book and you want to reprogram your mind. And the way you do that is with new experiences that every time you feel and you fall back onto a traditional emotion or a traditional behavior, you stop yourself, try and catch yourself in that decision, see if you're making a judgment about something and then try and replace that judgment with curiosity. So that's the eliminate the shortcuts. Stop using what's called valence in the neuroscience world where we, if something's bad, so, so basically that amygdala, that 2 million year old software just says, do I want to kill this person or do I want to mate with them? And that's, that's the two decisions that the amygdala makes. And so, you know, we make judgments based on that. If they're in our tribe and their genetic line is different than ours, which means a healthier offspring, I want to mate with them. If they're from a different tribe and they don't look like me, then I probably want to kill them. And and so if you can replace that very quick judgment, the right side of your brain handles the bad things from a valence perspective, the left side handles the good things. And if you can replace that 
with curiosity and you say, hey, just because this person doesn't look like me, doesn't act like me, doesn't talk like me, what can I, what can I value about this person? Then you're lighting up the other hemisphere. You're literally using twice the brain power, opening up the blood-brain barrier in, in uh, uh, recruiting more synapses and neurons, and you're thinking smarter. And so that eliminating the shortcuts has a profound effect literally after about a month of doing it. You, you immediately notice you become more curious, you become more open to things, and then that drives creativity as well. Mm. So much good stuff in here. And obviously, I highly recommend going deeper in the book. There's, I can just hear that we're scratching the surface of what you've studied. I know you've dived into this for many years to uh, compile this. And what I love about your approach, um, which you detail more in the book, is um, everything that I've seen and worked with people for many years to really shift longstanding patterns around how they relate to fear, their their perception of themselves, is people are all looking for some... I want some insight. I want to have an aha moment where then, boom, I'm free forever. I'm exonerated from all the discomfort. And the the truth is it's, well, even if you do have an aha moment, it needs to be followed up with reconditioning of ourselves because these old patterns can formulate and they're a subconscious as you're pointing out. So what I love about your method is so it's strong. very moment to moment and it is a, is a, it's a process over time. But the beautiful thing is, is that if we do apply something over time, there's such a liberation. Um, so I want to ask just maybe one or two more questions and then we'll uh, conclude here. Uh, but the one thing that's happening right now, collectively, uh, outside of the individual experiences we have, is a, a, a large state of fear uh, throughout the United States, a lot of the world. And people, you know, many, many people might say, hey, it's, it's warranted fear. This fear is good because it's making us take action to protect ourselves. And... Um, and yet there, there seems to be a lot of, um, you know, as other people might say, there's an excess of fear and we don't need so much fear to take effective action. Yeah. Other people say that, um, you know, we're reacting like an elephant that's being accosted by a house cat and <laughs> jumping off a cliff to avoid the cat, you know? And so there's a whole range of opinions and then we get into political perspectives and, mm. and, and I'm curious, uh, day to day. Someone's in their house, you know, they're trying to figure out, you know, maybe they're working from home, whatever. Um, and, you know, they, they want information about what's going on. They plug into the main, you know, news source. And then there's even more, you know, fear and yeah. activation, yeah. you know. So how do we moment to moment, and maybe it is using these base strategies, but other thoughts you have about how we can navigate this particular time of, of a lot of fear in, in the world? So um, I'll give you a quick explanation why we've got all this fear our brains are prediction engines. So what we try to do at any, any point in time is to predict the outcome of a current event. Excuse me, the way we do that is by going to all those things in our database. And, and the human mind, our subconscious has a database that can store as much as, as 500 of the best MacBook Pros out there, right? So if you imagine 500 laptops stacked on top of each other, that's what's in our subconscious mind. Those, the things that we put in there are called prior beliefs. So we take those prior beliefs and we use those to predict outcomes. If we can't make a prediction, we try and, we try and figure out what part of our senses do we need to incorporate to get more information so we can make a better or more accurate or in neuroscience world, world a more precise uh, prediction. So we look for precision based on our prior beliefs. 
When something's novel, for example, the novel coronavirus, it means it's just a fancy way of saying it's new and, we, and it's unknown. Mm-hmm. So when that happens, we can't predict the future. And when we can't predict the future and there's uncertainty or surprise, we produce something called free energy. And this free energy is really what fuels fear. So the key thing is that's what's happening in everyone's mind because we don't know what happens and and you can you can see it in people's face. I remember talking to my mom this morning um, and and I was staying with them uh, two weeks ago and then you know said, hey, I, you know I don't want to stay with you guys if I can't get back home. My my wife and kids are three thousand miles away, so I I said I don't want to be the one uh, infecting you guys, so I'm going to go back up to Boston. And you guys stay down here and, and be safe. And, and she was in this constant state of anxiety because of the unknown, because she was producing free energy. She called me this morning. She said, did you hear Tom Hanks and his wife are all better? And you could just tell in her voice that was another point of, of input that went into her database saying that, OK, somebody famous, someone she knows uh, or at least knows of, got it, recovered from it and is fine. And so as we get more and more information about what this is like, about the 45 people last week that started testing the, the uh, vaccine for it, about the, the new, um, uh, what's that drug called? I can't remember the name of it, but it's a, a malaria drug that they're, they're trying out with an HIV drug down at uh, Australia, University of Australia. And so when, as we find out more and more of this stuff, we get more and more knowledgeable. So we stop producing that free energy. But the key for for anyone out there who's dealing with the day-to-day anxiety is to be able to shut off that spigot of free energy at will. And and you brought up a couple of points, Dr. Aziz, in trying trying to ignore all the news and everything else because the news is looking for sensationalism, obviously. Social media is not only looking for sensationalism, it's a lot of fake news and a lot of bad information. And when we get in a case of information overload, we, we can't handle it. So the easy way for people out there to deal with it is to have a routine. And, and I always say, if you have a morning routine, that's probably one of the best things you can do. So start out your morning routine, uh, number one, with gratitude. When you wake up in the morning, thank God, thank Buddha, thank Allah, thank the universe that you're alive. You get another chance to, to have a great day. And then do some sort of breathing where you're just focused on the breathing, whatever it is. It can be the Tumo breathing. It can be the box breathing. It can be, you know, anything that that you're comfortable with. But just spend a couple minutes only focusing on the breath and then make sure if you're at home and you're working from home, you've got a routine. And that routine might be make coffee, have breakfast, get a workout in, take a shower, whatever it is. But but try and get in the point where you have some semblance of normality to fall back on. You don't want every day to be like a, you know, like a, a staycation that you might have had in the in the past years. You want to be able to follow your routine, get some things done and know you've accomplished some stuff. And I think that sort of thing, especially limiting, like you said, limiting um, your access to social media and to news sites is really helpful. And then spending time catching up with people. Um, I was just talking to a friend of mine, Peter Hurst, who's the Dean of um, Exec Ed at, at Sloan School at MIT. 
and uh, we were chatting back and forth online. He said, "Hey, let's you know, let's let's get uh, Skype up and have a virtual cocktail together after work this week." So, so we're you know we're doing virtual drinks uh, on Thursday afternoon, and and uh, just staying in touch with people is another great way to do it. Yeah, so much good uh, advice there, and great suggestions on on how to work with it. And from your understanding of uh, of fear. And I wonder if uh, maybe this is would have been the case no matter what time period. Maybe this is just a human thing. But it, I, I wonder about um, you know conditioning over time, and and if we're in a sense more prone to this level of fear because we have been so plugged into media and our screens and social media, and um, you know I think so many people live a life of how much comfort can I get? And I don't want to do things that make me uncomfortable or scary. And I wonder in terms of like, um, if the fear is something that, that we're able to be susceptible to just as much as the virus might be, um, you know, do you think there's something here for us to look at in our culture of how we are and, and some maybe wake up call? Well, without a doubt without a doubt and i you know i think a lot of good is going to come from this virus uh, every everything from you know how we interact and appreciate uh, our normality life to uh to vast increases in in speed of vaccine delivery and everything else i think one of the best things that could come from it would be a, a whole different change in parenting and um uh, we we're now on our second generation of way overly protective parenting and that's you you see the results of it in huge suicide rate increases in in um, the population under 24 years old because parents have stifled our kids ability to make decisions on their own to be creative problem solvers to to figure out what to do in in situations of boredom or or um, uh, you know alone, time and that sort of thing, because kids' lives are so scheduled now. You know, they're, they're going from school to soccer practice to violin practice to uh, Mandarin Chinese practice, and it's all laid out in schedule form, and they don't have to think, and they don't have to be creative. And I think a big part of that, what we've lost is a lot of the coming-of-age uh, traditions that we used to have, a lot of the challenges, because there's a certain percent who don't get through them. And, and what we've lost sight of, everything from having the, the rope in gym class because, you know, some, some kid who was overweight couldn't get up it or maybe fell and twisted an ankle and now they've taken him out of gym classes to, um, you know, given trophies for 14th place and, and participation trophies and you're just as good as the guy who won, so here's your trophy. And those things are a tremendous disservice for you know the millennial generation and then the the following generation beyond that because kids need an ability and this is a neuroscience perspective that they have to be able to figure out on their own problem solving they have to figure out the difference between assertiveness and aggressiveness they have to figure out how to deal with fearful situations and still be able to take action and all of these things require that that they're alone all of these things require that they make these decisions on their own without parents either helping them along or 
you know, holding the, the, uh, the, the bicycle up for too long. And that's one of the things. And so I, I don't know if we're going to come out of this better because of it, but I certainly hope so because kids just have no idea how to deal with anxiety. And then one of the things that happens and it's really well proven when you're socially interactive, you get more of, um, you, you get more of the, um, drug in your brain that's that's the feel-good drug it's the hug drug they call it um oxytocin and and we release that when we have social interactions now what happens when people try to have their social interactions online is you don't get that same release so while people might have a lot of friends online if they're not interacting in person you know playing a game or going to a movie or something like that they're not getting that same response that creates a much higher sense of anxiety and also uh, has them not able to produce as much. It's, it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy that you produce more of that happiness drug when you're with more people and you're happier. And that's why the, the blue zones, the areas around the world where people live over to 100 years old, have so much social interaction at, you know, at all different generation levels. So I, I think you know, if something like that can happen where kids get more challenged and, and start to face things on their own coming out of that, that would be the best outcome we could ever have. Yeah, man, I feel like we could have a, a four-hour interview. I want to respect <laughs> your, your time. Uh, one little last super quick question, and then we'll hear more about how people can can go further, because I absolutely there, there's so much more that they could learn from you. Um, that uh, oxytocin not getting released online, do you know if there's any research about uh, FaceTime video or any screen like Zoom where people are actually seeing each other's facial and facial reactions? Do you know I, anything about that? I don't, um, but I, I'd love to find out. I'd love to hear if if the if it's the medium or the interaction. You know, one of the things there's a, a neuroscientist at MIT called Earl Miller. Then Earl's a great guy, and a lot of his research is in my book. He's the first person to really have found that. Um, we used to think brain waves were a byproduct of the neurons and the synapses firing and the action potential being used. And so, um, you know, if you don't know anything about neuro neuroscience, you could think of it like exhaust coming from a car. So when the engine's running, there's exhaust, but the exhaust doesn't do anything. It just comes from the engine running. That's how up until two years ago, everyone thought of brain waves. Well, you're neurons and synapses are firing, so there's going to be brainwave, net, brainwave activity. He's proven it's, it's just the opposite. So brainwave activity helps coordinate communication within your brain. Mm -hmm. So it, it connects different areas of the brain, the limbic system with the, with the SGACC and that sort of thing. And so one of the things that I believe, and, and having seen it in you know, SEAL teams that I've worked with or having seen it in, in pro baseball teams that I've worked with is there can be communication, um, you know, the easy way to say it is telepathically, right? But, but the science approach would be that those brain waves, those wireless signals can go not just in your own brain, but they can go to another person's brain. Mm -hmm. And so I wonder, to be, to, to be more specific about the point, I wonder if those have some responsibility for releasing the oxycotton in or oxytocin, sorry, the oxytocin in your brain and wouldn't be able to do that over a, a FaceTime or Skype or something like that. Sure. I mean, it's, it's such a fascinating line of research. And then then there's that 
that phenomenon that I think everyone has experienced of, you know, our, if you're in close proximity uh, to someone, you know, that sense of being able to get into that sink where you might be able to feel like you get more of them and you can pick up on, on the thinking. But then there's also that, that phenomenon or synchronicity experience where it's like you're thinking about someone from across, across the globe. And I think that stuff's so fascinating, right? Cause we have our own experience. And then as time goes on and we get more sophisticated ways to measure this stuff, then, you know, more and more is illuminated, which kind of brings us all the way back to that leaf outside the hospital and that, you know, we're, we're, great you know graced with a life in this mysterious amazing infinitely deep and complex universe that mm-hmm. we can explore all the way up and all the way down and probably never get to the bottom of it but uh, you know the more we learn uh, the more empowered we can become and i really love uh, what you're teaching and how you're teaching it and how accessible you're making this and i strongly encourage everyone listening to start with fear is fuel and if people want to go so they can find that on on amazon um but if people want to go further and learn more about anything from you what's the best place to find you online so pjsweeney.com is my website and on instagram i'm the fear guru or twitter uh pjsweeney as well so um you know looking up the fear guru gets me uh in, in most places i think and uh i'd love to have people you know come sign up um we do a uh twice monthly uh, blog or video from pjsweeney.com with some good information, everything from, uh, you know, I think the most popular one I had was one I put out two weeks ago, which was how you can respond to coronavirus with boosting your immune system and a morning routine and a lot of the stuff we just talked about here and, you know, all sorts of good stuff there. And, and, and I'd love to hear what you think about some of the things we did today and, and how you've put them to use and, and you know, how they might've helped you because that's why I'm doing all this stuff is, is really to help millions of people learn to be courageous and confident. And I think that's how we get a, a really amazing new world is when we're not ruled by fear and politicians aren't able to use it against us or marketing, you know, campaigns can't use it against us. And we can all think calmly and confidently, just like you're trying to, uh, help people with Dr. Aziz. I love it. Thank you again, Patrick. You bet. Thank you. It was great, great talking to you. And thank you all for your, for your time and for listening. That brings us to the end of our interview, but not quite the end of the episode, because there's one more thing that we got to do. And you know what that is. Time for action, action, action. Time for your action step. So, so many different things you could take from this interview. You can obviously choose which one you want, but one specific action I'd highly recommend is to actually practice the box breathing that he talked about. You remember that in the interview, what the Navy SEALs do? The four by four breathing or box breathing, as they call it, where you breathe in to a count of four, hold it for a count of four, breathe out for a count of four, hold that for a count of four, and then repeat. And I would encourage you as your action step to set a timer on your phone or a watch for five minutes minimum and 10 ideal to do just that. Nothing more, no distractions, no TV, just no, no music, no audiobook. just five or 10 minutes, set a timer you choose of, of that box breathing, bring all your focus to your breath. Such a powerful exercise. And you, the reason I want you to do this is because knowing that we can calm our minds and our bodies through some sort of mindfulness practice does nothing. 
Knowing that does nothing in the moment. And what we need to do is we need to be able to do it. And when you do it and you feel it, then you're going to get hooked and want to do it more. Because here's the thing, when when there's intense stuff going on, that's not the time to be like, I guess I'll try that box breathing for the first time ever. I mean, you actually want to have a, a history or a practice of knowing how to use it, knowing how to calm yourself. So why not start today? Why not start right now? That's what I would encourage. And until we speak again, may have the courage to be who you are and to know on a deep level that you're awesome. Thanks for listening to Shrink for the Shy Guy with Dr. Aziz. If you know anyone who can benefit from what you've just heard, please let them know and send them a link to shrinkfortheshyguy.com. For free blogs, ebooks, and training videos related to overcoming shyness and increasing confidence, go to socialconfidencecenter.com.